Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the question, how does knowledge grow? My guest is Dr. Chris Halfa, professor of philosophy at Case Western Reserve University. We discuss Dr. Halfa's book on the evolutionary development of scientific practice, and I learn the basic ways to evaluate that scientific growth. So come, have a seat with us, and learn to listen with me. And tell us a little bit about how did you get into this question? Um, is this a childhood thing? Like you were like, you're always like fascinated with science or is it like uh, later on development? Tell us a little bit about uh, Dr. Chris Halfa. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I really didn't get into philosophy until college. Um, I mean, I went, you know, when I was about 16 years old, I really fell in love with uh, Noam Chomsky. And mm. kind of, um, I'm sorry, how old were you? About 16. Yeah. <laughs> but you weren't into philosophy early. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it actually, I came to him through, through the band Rage Against the Machine. Oh, well, that would um, make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I, um, you know, so I, I kind of, uh, you know, one of the Rage Against the Machine albums had like this picture of a bunch of books kind of like, mm. you know, stacked end to end. I'm sure I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I saw one of those books was by a, a person named Noam Chomsky. So I went to like the local college library and I, um, I found a book by him, you know, and I didn't really, it was, it was the most challenging thing I'd ever read for sure. It was, oh, it, was yeah. the, it was necessary illusions. It was like classic Chomsky book. Um, and so I'm sorry, I, I'm just trying to get over the fact that you like cold turkey, had no idea, just picked up a Noam Chomsky book. That must have been, yeah, when you say it was the hardest thing you'd ever read, like, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, sorry, to be honest, amazing. like, I it was probably like the sixth book I've read, uh, at that gotcha. point. Like, I just not a big reader. Um, so yeah, I guess when you think of it in uh, along that trajectory, it was kind of a big step, yes, um, yes, yeah, but you know, I think. Rage Against the Machine uh, just kind of woke up something in me, mm. you know, and just uh, really got concerned with knowing more stuff just generally. Um, and, you know, so that that led me directly to Chomsky. And um, I did finally manage to get a, a, a little a much more accessible uh, Chomsky book. They were selling at the time these kind of thin little volumes at Barnes and Noble, which had just opened uh, in my town. Okay, and so I gra I got one of these, and oh, gotcha. um, yeah, yeah, me yeah. Down. It just, I mean, not just the the content, you know, very surprising, kind of about um, you know what you know the kinds of human atrocities uh, that mm. had. <laughs> Uh, you know, been occurring over the last 50 years or so. But yeah. the style of it, of him kind of like just effortlessly refuting people using their own words mm. um, was just like really intoxicating, you know? Um, yes. And, yeah. and so I was like, I just want to, I want to do this. I want to just 
prove people wrong. Like, that's what I want to do with my life, you know? Um, and, and so when I got to college, um, I had, I met a, I was involved in a student activist group that was, um, kind of, uh, directed by a philosophy professor and this philosophy professor had been a student of Chomsky's in fact. So this is kind of like, you know, my third month at college. Okay. And I'm just like, everything's coming together. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, well, this guy, you know, he's kind of like a hardcore, you know, activist. I mean, we're going to, you know, the school of the Americas protest and we're, you know, mailing medicine to Iraq, like in protests of, you know, uh, sanctions against uh, Iraq. I mean, this is back in the early, yeah. late 1990s. Okay. Right. And, um, and I'm like, I just want to be this guy, you know, so I'm just gonna, I guess philosophy is the way you do that. And, and I was right. I mean, the philosophy that I was introduced to was really mm-hmm. like the science of proving people wrong. That's kind of how I I viewed it, you know, it was just there, it was just a game and the game was to prove people wrong. Um, and I, you know, I, it really felt like I had found my calling, you know, <laughs> um, which is kind of sad, uh, when you think about it, but, um, mm. yeah, I mean, so that, you know, that, that kind of, that's what led me into philosophy. Just the fact that, you know, I was, I'm just a jerk at heart. Uh, trying to <laughs> prove people wrong. <laughs> oh, man. what a dark story! God. Yeah, no, um, I, I, uh, I love that. So it, you mentioned uh, it's a little sad. So I, you reflect on that, and it seems like maybe some things have changed for you. How do you view philosophy instead of just the the science of proving people wrong? Do you view it as something slightly different now? Well, yeah. So that that's really this project, uh, how knowledge grows, was really my. Um, my first attempt to do philosophy um, that didn't involve just proving people wrong. Mm. So I had written my uh, my PhD dissertation on um, evolutionary psychology, specifically what's wrong with it, you know, because that's my thing. That's at your that thing. Time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, you know, I got done with that project and I, I felt like it, I, I had done a pretty good job, Um, but the world contained no more stuff than before I started, you know, Mm -hmm. doing philosophy. And, you know, I had not kind of produced any ideas and Mm -hmm. it really bothered me. And I just kind of, you know, looked at my approach to philosophy and kind of how I conceptualized my, my role as an intellectual and, you know, reminding myself that you know, as as good as Chomsky was at, at proving people wrong, that wasn't the only thing he did. That was like a sidekick, yeah. right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that, you know, uh, that I should probably um, spend some time generating some kind of positive uh, contribution, you know, some, some useful or, you know, illuminating idea um, or set of ideas. Hmm. Um, and uh yeah i mean that's that's kind of the or- orientation that i had adopted when i came upon this project 
Gotcha. Um, now, was that discovering Thomas Kuhn, or were you already kind of familiar with Kuhn, and you, and it started to kind of grow from there? I mean, I had, I was a, I was a little bit familiar with Kuhn. I mean, of course, I, I knew Kuhn as a figure well as like an object of abuse um, uh, among <laughs> philosophers of science. Uh, and, but I hadn't really studied his kind of, you know, um, important book, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, in any depth. And then I started teaching it um, at Case Western hmm. um, on a regular basis. And I just, you know, I mean, I, I, I became more and more uh, infatuated with the book and just really kind of um developed an appreciation for its depth and scope um that i certainly never had and that was never really given to me by the philosophy that i had read hmm. um you know which which was which was substantial i mean it was i was i was you know i knew the literature um with respect to kuhn and um you know i think kuhn had published his book at a time that uh, philosophy of science was not really ready for it, um, you know, just way ahead of his time. And, uh, and it contains some very controversial ideas. Um, and I think that philosophers kind of latched on to those really controversial ideas and missed um the ideas that weren't so controversial you know because they were just super accurate um so they know, were this... just really valuable it is funny how people will miss like the really valuable stuff yeah if it's just kind of like um if it's just obvious right yeah even if no one's implementing that yeah yeah exactly i mean that's that's exactly what happened um and you know, I think it it's taken a really long time to to kind of uh, you know detox uh, as a as a as an academic community and and try to start fresh on mm. um, looking at this book and um, and focusing on um, you know just the whole model of the development of science that's presented rather than you know the the very controversial philosophical thesis of incommensurability, which is kind of like the um, the inability of um, different communities of scientists to to understand each other, really. Mm. Um, gotcha. You know, so, so, sorry, so when, when you're talking about, yeah, um, I just want to make sure for our audience' sake, um, uh, do you mind just maybe explaining incommensurability a little bit and yeah. then uh of course i think the more interesting thing you know after you kind of explain that controversial side what are the things that are really not that controversial but are super helpful uh for us and obviously then your own work branches off that so if you want to let that flow into what your book is about i'd love to hear that sure good yeah so maybe i'll start with the the uncontroversial stuff because sure. it's kind of there's a sequence um yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, you know, I mean, the 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 essence of Kuhn's book is to uh, describe the way that a ideas within a scientific community 
um, develop from their earliest stages uh, and eventually transition to a whole new set of ideas, a new framework. Okay. Mm. So that, that's kind of the project um, of the book. And the, uh, the, the kind of key idea in this book is the notion of a scientific, a paradigm. Okay. This, this is where the, this is where that term comes from in popular usage. Right. Um, and the way Kuhn, uh, articulates the, the notion of a paradigm, it's basically just kind of a set of kind of like a framework that scientists work in. Okay. Um, it's not really a set of beliefs they have about nature, but it's a set, it's a style with which they investigate nature. That style includes the kinds of instruments they use, but it also includes the kinds of ideas that they use to kind of, you know, as a platform for their investigations. And can you give an example? I, I, I know in one of your talks, you even talked about Kepler, just so that sure. we can root this uh, in something concrete, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so, I mean, Kepler is a, is a good example. Um, the, you know, astronomy for, for a couple thousand years, uh, give or take, before Kepler, um, is concerned, well, not, not, not a couple thousand, 1500 or so, um, is uh, involved in the project of using different combinations of circles to uh, model the motion of celestial bodies. Hmm. Okay, so if you want to, uh, you want to sort of predict where a celestial body is going to be at some time, you, um, you chart its path as if it were going moving in a perfect circle at a uniform speed hmm. okay um and that's just that's it's so deeply ingrained in the culture of doing astronomy it's not it's barely a belief i mean it's it's that deep you know in, in much the way that the the kinds of mental constructs right that that guide us in our everyday culture are are not really beliefs it's like you know them but you don't like hold them consciously in your mind um, um would an example maybe this is a little too uh we're a little too aware of this or maybe not i i often find myself thinking about this with the way uh the western world treats efficiency as like <laughs> automatically good, right? Like it's like, yeah. oh, it's, like literally people just be like, oh, well, it's more efficient. And mm -hmm. then like, that's supposed to be the end of the discussion, right? Like if it's more efficient, it's automatically better. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a good example, right? You okay. don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a value that you don't have to, it, it can be, it can go unquestioned, right? Um, yeah. Like you can assert it as valuable and no one will question it. It's just part of the, you know, your participation in the culture really depends on you accepting this as valuable. Yeah, you, it's the default. Like uh, if I said like, well, it, I actually think this is better even though it's inefficient. Like, well, you got to explain that, right? <laughs> like, yeah, so, yeah, like, so it's Kepler, yeah. I'm assuming, you know, it's the, the ellipse of uh, the ellipticals, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, okay, what are you even talking about? It's not circles, what, you know? Yeah, uh, exactly, right? I mean, it's, so you wouldn't have to, 
it was it was just assumed, you know, the presupposition is that if you're doing astronomy, mm-hmm. you're modeling motions with combinations of circles. Yeah. Um, and it's not something that comes up because it's, you know, virtually by definition, that's what you're doing, right? That kind of thing is what uh, Kuhn referred to as a paradigm. Hmm. It's like the culture of research, you know, um, the the default assumptions or, you know, default presuppositions about what kinds of instruments we use, what kind of ideas we use, and so on. Um, and, you know, uh, what Kuhn argued in the first part of this book is that science as a cumulative kind of community endeavor, the, you know, the kind of um, research production we associate with modern science, right? Mm. That doesn't exist outside of a paradigm, mm. right? That, that communities of scientists, groups of scientists require this paradigm in order to produce a cumulative product that we call scientific knowledge. So, and that's where that in- incommensurability comes in, where he's saying that if you don't share the same paradigm, you can't even communicate. Yeah, exactly. Am I tracking? Okay. Right, exactly. Like, I mean, I've only heard like five minute explanations of Kuhn. So, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I'm just piecing together and making sure I'm tracking with you. Yeah, no, you're already an expert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and, and so, I mean, just to flesh that out a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, these cultures for Kuhn were, you know, something like a, a scholarly language of thought hmm. and a lang- you know, a language of communication, kind of the, the currency of, of, of scholarship is, um, you know, all, all these ideas pull out, you know, different properties of what Kuhn thought of as a paradigm. Right. Um, and right. If people who share different paradigms um, are speaking different scholarly languages, and sometimes they don't realize that, um, you know, they're because they're using a lot of the same sounds and the same symbols. Right. But those symbols have taken on a totally different meaning. Um, or or a partially different meaning, right? Um, maybe there's gotcha. some overlap. Uh, uh, but... Can I? Do you mind if I give an example? I Please, just yeah. talked to uh, Dr. Balbinder Bagal. He he's a, a chair in Sikhi studies, and okay. pretty much, we, we, I honestly I didn't know much about Sikhi. Um, and he was talking about, um, you know, the, the culture and the, the devotional practices and that sort of thing. But one of the first things he said, it's often listed as like the world's fifth biggest religion, major religion. And he's like, it's not really a religion. That's, mm. that's something that came from outside the culture. But we're actually at this weird point now where it's been applied so many times that now we have to use the word religion, but we have to use it in a different way. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Like, I yeah. mean, even when you talk about like the distinction in, in uh, Western culture between religion and philosophy. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense when you're talking about Sikhi. Like the, the religion, the philosophy are pretty much the same mm. thing. And okay. so, uh, you know, you're using the same word, the same sounds, religion, but it means something very different 
to to him than for you know for instance i grew up in christianity and at this point there's this whole uh historical background to what religion means if that makes sense yeah sure um yeah exactly so that right i mean you know what that's a perfect example so we use the same sound but we often mean very different things by it right um you know, for some people, it's rituals. For some people, it's like an entire lifestyle. For some people, it's, you know, a list of beliefs. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think that's, um, that's, a, that's a good example of, you know, when the terms that people are using, they, they seem to be the same, but they are using them in different ways. And they, they often don't realize that. Right. Um, which is considerably and, uh, worse than using them differently and at least realizing it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Because they keep running into uh, like confusion, um, because they think they're communicating, but the you know a lot of stuff's getting lost because the meanings of their shared terms have changed. Yeah. Um, good. Right. So, uh, you know what? What Kuhn essentially uh describes is you know a culture kind of defined by this paradigm a research culture defined by a paradigm and that um this paradigm kind of unites them all and kind of unites their efforts and, and narrows their focus hmm. um and this is what uh allows them to produce you know to kind of probe more deeply into nature um uh to you know presuppose a lot of stuff and then start investigating much deeper questions right um they don't constantly have to you know build nature from the ground up every time they want to say something right mm -hmm. they can just assume a massive amount of of shared ideas um shared ways of investigating shared ways of arguing um, you know, for a particular view about nature. Uh, and it's, you know, once you have a community that is bound in this way, you can produce what we recognize as scientific knowledge. Hmm. Outside of that, you know, out, when you don't have a scientific community, essentially what you have is just a bunch of people doing, you know, their kind of off on their own doing their own investigations you know it makes sense to them and but there's no community that they're speaking to right hmm. um there's no kind of shared understanding that everybody in this field is drawing on to kind of understand the results that other people are producing and fit them into a broader framework um so, uh, you know, I mean, just to, to, to kind of get into the messy details of science, right? I mean, if you do sure. an experiment, um, and you know, you follow an, a very rigorous protocol, uh, and then you draw a conclusion based on that experiment, um, at that point, all we have is your like well 
supported idea, right? Or your kind of like rigorously investigated idea. Hmm. But it's not yet scientific knowledge because it hasn't been submitted to the scientific community. Um, it hasn't, the community hasn't had a chance to kind of properly vet um, your, your investigation, your methods and your conclusions and so on. Right. And so, I mean, no matter how well you do your science, ultimately it's going to depend on the community's appraisal of what you've done in order for it to, you know, rise to the status of scientific knowledge. Does that make sense? Yes. I, so, uh, one of my, uh, my, Second son's name is Soren. So one of my favorite philosophers, obviously, <laughs> is uh, uh, Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard, you know, if you want to go the Danish pronunciation. And um, uh, I, one of the things from Fear and Trembling, and, you know, this is my reading of it. Obviously, he's not the, uh, he does tend to be kind of controversial. But that idea that you have subjective truth, objective truth, and absolute truth. And he's, he's arguing with Hegel about objective truth. And there's a lot of value to objective truth. Of course, he's arguing kind of against it. But this idea that um, if you're working with, with stats, for instance, um, and this isn't exactly what he's talking about, but it's close. And you're like, 99% of the time, this is going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the objective truth of it. It's like, most of the time, we know this is what happens. But mm -hmm. the that doesn't mean anything to the individual who encounters the 1%. Mm -hmm. And what actually happens in the individual moment is absolute truth, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if, that, you know, if that's a, a good explanation of that, but this idea that there is common knowledge that we, we push together in store, and then sometimes people are able individually to break through to something new, something that is deeper into truth, but generally we have to exist with like, like cultural wisdom, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And his example, of course, is in ethics with Abraham, right? Like, right, uh, yeah. we don't want to revisit every generation, whether it's okay to kill or sacrifice your kids, you know, <laughs> that's like the kind of thing we just generally accept, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we just kind of accept as like, okay, we're not going to discuss this. But his point was that for Abraham, because he was talking to God, now, you know, all of this is very controversial from Kierkegaard's point of view, but I think the whole point stands that, let's say, if Abraham actually was talking to God and God told him to do that, then it was the right thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we can, <laughs> we can argue about whether Abraham really heard God, mm -hmm. but that idea that when you do have a connection to what is really true, and I think that's what happens with, for instance, um, going back to Kepler, Kepler's like, wait. If I, if I make it not circles, it makes so much more sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though everyone else looked at him like he was crazy, he was able to kind of break through in this, that, this paradigm shifting moment. Mm -hmm. um, I loved it. I loved it. You know, I just got to see everybody getting it. You're like, honestly, he wasn't a very good scientist. He just came, <laughs> you know what I mean? he, he just came across this, right? And he's like, oh, that just makes more sense. And so what's interesting about that is that you don't even have to be uh, a genius to find the paradigm breaking moment, to find the, mm. the individual touching on the, the absolute. It's just when you happen to come across it. Yeah. So is, is that, I mean, that's me coming from my kind of uh, humanities hermeneutics background, but yeah. does that, is that tracking? 
Yeah, I think that I think that the key there is the idea of some kind of common knowledge, right? Yeah. That scientific knowledge is kind of like common knowledge for scientists. You yes. know, it's it's what everybody knows. It's the kind of thing that could appear in a textbook. Right. Um, right. And you just in your lab, you know, doing an experiment and coming to a conclusion, it's yeah. not it's not um fit for a textbook yet. Okay. Right. Um right. maybe someday it will be. Um, but yes. that will depend on, you know, the community's appraisal. Yes. And the, you know, without that community, um, the idea of a textbook just doesn't even make sense. Right. And I right. think the important thing here is that textbooks can be wrong, but you can't, you can't work without textbooks. Like you have right. to have a base knowledge that everyone agrees on. And then even it's like uh, with artists, like you have to start with the rules and then break them. Right. Exactly. Yep. That's a very, very good analogy. Um, you, uh, yeah, it's the, the, what's in the textbook. It's not about being right. It's about being mm -hmm. what every, the ideas that the community in general appeals to, to do mm -hmm. science. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not, I mean, you know, look at, how many textbooks uh, have, um, you know, are, are based on Newtonian mechanics, right? Um, Newtonian mechanics is super useful. Yeah. And it's a great way to introduce people um, into the style of physical reasoning. Um, but what's that? What's that quote? Every model is wrong, but some are useful. Something yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know. We don't look to textbooks for as the you know repositories of absolute truths. We look to them as the the kind of uh, manuals that will help us learn how to do science in this mm. community. And it get, that gives us the ability to make decisions, right, and to make decisions well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even for a, a layperson, you know. They might be wrong about some things in your biology textbook, but you're generally going to be better off <laughs> going with what you learn in your biology textbook than just what as a 12 year old, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're just and, like, and more, more importantly, you'll be yeah. able to communicate with other biologists about yes. science. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, I think like is 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 the stuff in the biology textbook more likely to be correct than you know what you come up with in a dream um i mean <laughs> maybe probably i hope so i would hope um, so yeah. but but yeah. the you know what the role that it's playing is to help you to you know acquire the language that biologists use to communicate with one another about nature well, and I just want to point out, because I laughed at it, and then I thought about it, like, we laughed at the at the dream thing, right? Like, I hope, you like, the, bio, the biology textbook is better. But the truth is that, like, a thousand years ago, like, most people would have taken their dream over, our, over a textbook. Yeah, you probably would have, uh, you probably would have been just fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, that's um, true, too. The textbooks weren't very good. So, the, but this, this accumulation is incredibly valuable. Yes, exactly. And, and it's, so, you know, I think that was 
Kuhn's, um, you know, really, really fundamental contribution, which was mm. to show that uh, the, the the growth of scientific knowledge requires this kind of community, a mm. community that um, kind of proceeds from a common platform of, you know, shared understanding. And it doesn't have to even be explicit or like articulated beliefs about nature, right? I mean, a lot of it is just stuff you absorb, at, you know, as part of your training as a scientist. You know, in the same way that um, you and I, uh, I mean, I'm not from New England. I'm from the Midwest. But, you know, we have a, a very... Um, precise sense of how far we're supposed to be standing from somebody when we talk to them. Yes. You know, and I didn't get that sense from like, you know, using a measuring tape and somebody sitting me down and saying, now look, when you stand by, you know, to talk to somebody, you got to stand this far away from them, right? You just acquire it as part as being part of the culture. And but you will, it's you acquire a very, very acute sensitivity right to um the when this space has been breached yes you know uh and i think this is this is how kuhn envisioned most of uh the training of a scientist was to get them you know um enculturate them into the community of scientists by imparting to them in in one uh, you know via one channel or another uh the capacities for communicating with other scientists for um you know an intuitive sense of how to kind of categorize nature or you know divide up nature and an acute sense of when something is not going the way it's supposed to be going right because we don't always make conscious decisions about those things. Uh, the, the corollary to what you're talking about, like in the West, we have very clear, like physical, you know, this is my personal space. Yeah. And then I remember my friend went over and taught English in China and okay. like getting in line is a very different, like you have to be touching in order to be considered in line. Ah, like, okay. Like literally like your body wow. has to be touching the person in front of you. And that's like, huh. it, like, like if you're three feet behind somebody, people will come and get in front of you. Like he had like two people get in between oh until God. they were touching, right? Like he learned wow. to like, so, and that's, um, but that kind of stuff ends up affecting science, right? Uh, it might not be personal space though. I could see how that could show up in certain things. Um, but there are other assumptions like that, that could, that are going to influence how you set up experiments, for example. Exactly. Right. And yeah, how people just, respond you know, to them. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You just, yeah. I mean, no, that's exactly right. You just have, you know, you develop a feel for a lot of stuff. And and so much of doing science in a community develop, involves having a shared feeling for, you know, when an experiment is going right or, you know, what direction all the research is pointing to. Mm. Um, and, you know, all these things that you can't really articulate, but you know in a, in a different form. Yeah. You know. Um and uh and so yeah, I mean, I th I think that this is where I got really interested in trying to um understand 
uh, or to kind of model the scientific communities as, uh, you know, evolutionary entities, right? Um, yes. Like a population of organisms that hmm. ad- evolves and adapts and um, sometimes splits into, uh, uh, you know, separate populations and what sorts of pressures drive that and that sort of thing, right? So, I mean, I just, I, you know, because most of my, most of my time up until uh, my reading of Kuhn had been spent studying you know, the philosophy of evolutionary uh, biology, um, you know, evolutionary theory, um, and the kind of, you know, related disciplines, population genetics, and um, um, evolutionary developmental biology, and that sort of thing. And, you know, it was just kind of, I started to see the, as many people before me have, um, you know the very str- including Kuhn himself very strong parallels between the process by which um communities generate scientific ideas and kind of move forward um in their understanding of nature hmm. and on the other hand the way in which populations of organisms um respond and adapt to their environment and undergo um, their own kind of uh, evolutionary change. Yeah, what would you say is the most surprising thing? Because uh, often as you're working through this stuff, something will come up that you realize is true, but it surprises you. Was there anything like that you were like, wow, I hadn't thought about that conclusion or kind of that um, uh, application of what, what I was studying? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the thing that surprised me most was this idea that um, the the phenomenon Kuhn describes as a scientific revolution, right? A paradigm change um, yeah. uh, can be uh, under you know has many many parallels with the um, phenomenon known as mass extinction uh, in evolutionary biology. Um, you know, in, uh, so much so that so that you know. Uh, Kuhn describes um, scientific revolutions as crises in the history of science mm-hmm. um, at, at exactly the same time, um, you gotcha. know, in the 60s, paleontologists describe mass extinctions as crises in the history of life, right? They both um, talk about, you know, different rules for success, right? That the these transitions involve transitions in the rules of what counts as success, you know, what determines success. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, I mean, a, a whole, whole load of, uh, surprising points of contact between these two. Um, right. Um, so if you look at it, uh, from the evolutionary standpoint, uh, you know, if you go with like the meteor hypothesis, it hits, everything is like, uh, the idea of what it takes to survive all of a sudden ra- like rapidly shifts. Yeah. Right. Good, That's, exactly. And, yeah. and then of course, in a scientific revolution, you have like your criteria and standards for what, like this is proven. Right. And so when you have this revolution, <laughs> and when the paradigm changes, the, the body of knowledge changes and, and becomes displaced that everyone's scrambling to find, okay, what, it, what does it mean to prove something now? 
Yeah. And so, exactly. uh, and I'm sure <laughs> there's, so, you know, there's a lot of animals that die in a meteor event and there's a lot of maybe careers that die. <laughs> <in a, laughs> <laughs> that you're like, oh, I do not understand this new world that I'm existing in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting to see, and I'm sure um, you've seen this, where um, certain thinkers are very prominent during a certain time period, and then all of a sudden they just they're just gone. They're not interesting anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I think is that kind of what we're talking about here? Like everyone's like, oh, actually, we don't like that. Like that doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, sure, that can happen. You know, once the 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 rules for what good science is change. Mm. Um, yeah, people can be left behind, right? If they, I mean, you know, Kuhn talks about this. A lot of people looked at this. Even uh, Max Planck um, described uh, a phenomenon um, whereby, uh, you know, a new theory is only able to gain hold once uh, the adherents of the old theory are all dead, right? Um, yeah, because it requires such a radical shift mm. um, in perspective that you know people that are kind of reared in the earlier perspective uh, often aren't able to get on board. Um, mm. yeah, Kuhn, Kuhn talks about this a little bit too, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I you hear this a lot um, uh, from scientists just about you know kind of. Uh, more senior scientists not uh not always um you know abandoning what looks to be um a degenerating uh mm. research program do you think there's a little bit of sunk cost fallacy there where they're like i've put so much of my career into this that i just need to stick with it yeah i mean i think there is uh I think there, you know, for many people, there are sunk costs, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a fallacy. I mean, the 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 thing is that if you've spent your entire career working within a particular perspective, you've honed your mm. use of that perspective so effectively that yeah. you probably are better off just <laughs> sticking in it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so um, not not a fallacy. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a great correction. Yeah, I mean that's not fair. Like uh, to ask someone at like fifty or sixty to like completely uh, jettison and create an entire new like apparatus for doing what they do. Um, it would. I'm, I'm sure some people have done it, but that's that, that's quite the undertaking at that point. Yeah, it's not for everybody, and. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it may be that the science that you produce from, you know, with the older tools is actually better than what you would have produced with the, the newer tools. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I, in, in so many ways, I think, kind of, you know, scientific ideas are much more like bits of technology that we kind of keep in our minds, uh, right, uh, rather than beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, about nature per se. And, um, you know, there may be some fancy new technology available, but because I'm such an expert with, you know, the older, you know, more primitive tools, yeah. um, uh, I may be able to, to do the job in, in, you know, just as well in, in, in a shorter amount of time. Um, 
Got even it. without the the new fancy technology. Um, so feel free to reject this question because it might be too broad. Sure. Um, I, I've gotten some of this from, and it, it was a while ago, but uh, the way that the word science has morphed over time, can you give a layman uh, a better grasp of what it, what science even is in terms of le- in in terms of how you think about it and articulate it? Uh, yeah, I think um, science is the production, the investigation of nature um, in communities, right? Mm. The communally organized investigation of nature. Got it. Beyond that, um, I don't think there's a very stable, uh, you know, any, anything that I... <laughs> Anything more specific is likely to be, um, you know, it'll change over time because right. ideas are changing, styles are changing. You know, I mean, you take something like hypothesis testing, hmm. you know, I mean, 200 years ago, you know, full modern science is is fully in motion. Testing, using hypotheses was was a widely distrusted um, viewed as not really real science. I mean, Darwin was criticized um, from all sides for, you know, because he was using the method of hypotheses, um, you know, in his book, uh, Origin of Species. Huh. Right. Um, and that's just not good science um, from that, pers- you know, the perspective of that time. Um, you know, nowadays, science involves a lot of statistical testing. You know, that wasn't true 100 years ago. Mm. Um, We still had uh, fully modern uh, scientific investigation. Mm. So, you know, it it evolves in its in its content. Um, But, you know, I think at at its core, kind of like a higher level is this, um, you know, communally organized um, investigation of nature. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really solid. Fits a lot with what you've been saying so far. So um, one of the things as I'm looking at the the description of your book, because I couldn't get it yet, right? It's, you know, coming out in November, but the uh, talk to me about this tension between historical contingency and forgive me, but if you can give a definition of that, that tension between historical contingency and the trustworthiness of science, right? You said we should still trust science, even if it is historically contingent, which Coming from like my studies in Gautamer makes total sense to me, but like mm-hmm. in our in our culture, like people are like, but but it's always changing. How do we know? And it's like, well, I mean, I'll leave it up to yeah. you. Yeah, no, I mean that's a serious problem. Um, you know, I think that so by historical contingency, I I, I sort of mean, um, look, we have certain, you know, our science today has a certain content to it, right? Maybe. Um, you know, in physics, we believe in quantum mechanics and Einstein and stuff like that, and Darwinian uh, theory and in, in, in biology and um, uh, uh, atomic theory of chemistry. Um, now, uh, suppose history had gone uh, radically differently, right? From mm. I don't know the the seventeenth century on. Um, you know, or, or you know, e- even more recently, um, 
we we probably still would have had we still would have developed some systematic investigation of nature. I mean, we had it in in other um, domains. Right? I mean, astronomy is is kind of a modern science from from a long, long time ago. Uh, mm. For example, right? um, so we, you know, we could expect to to still have developed you know the kind of systematic, communally organized investigation of nature that we have. Um, but it's likely that our theories would have been very different, hmm. right? The specific views we have about nature would have been very different. Um, and when you realize that, I mean, I, I stand by that comment. I think every historian of science would. Um, when you realize that, uh, you you can't help but look at the implications uh, for, you know, what we actually do believe about nature. Hmm. Well, if I, you know, if I had, I would have believed something totally different and I would have believed that that is true. I currently believe that these ideas are true. So what, like, is my belief in the truth of the idea really tracking? If I still would have believed the idea was true, had it been totally different. Hmm. Um, and if that's the case, it's really hard to come up with, um, you know, a reason to trust science that appeals to the truth of scientific theories. Hmm. Right, because the theories, I mean, what reason is there to think that they're true if we would have believed they were true had they been totally different? Right. Right. Um, you know, and it doesn't, you don't, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to imagine alternative history. You know, at every point, um, uh, in, in, you know, the, the, the history of modern science, We've had certain understanding of nature, hmm. uh, and we've abandoned it in hmm. favor of something better, right? And we will continue to do that, right? We will abandon what we have now when something uh, we have more faith in comes along. Yeah. Um, it seems like there's an underlying idea of like progress here. That it's like uh like a gradual accumulation versus kind of these lightning bolt and then complete moments, if that makes sense. Um I don't know if there's that kind of progress in terms of getting closer to, you know, the ultimate truth about nature. I think it would be very hard to to show that that was happening. Uh, um, yeah. And let me, let me correct that. Even like, uh, the way that I said that I could see how that could be construed the, uh, I mean, even my, my point, like the pursuit of big questions, right. Uh, even like the use of like chasing Leviathan, the point is you can never catch Leviathan. You can only pursue it. Right. Yeah. So okay. like, I, yeah, like we can't, we, I would completely agree that, uh, unless you're like some kind of omniscient being, you can't ever fully know everything all at once. Cause you'd have like, it would, your brain would explode. Right. So I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about like ultimate truth, but what we have 
not always, but often is better than what we had before, right? Like our understanding yeah. of that, that's what I'm talking about in terms of progress, not like, not kind of this uh, ultimate synthesis that we'll get to, you know, where Hegel's very self-congratulatory, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, 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 at any given time, we are more satisfied with what we, what we have than what we used to have. Right. right. Um, uh, you know, I think that, you know, if you, in, in certain ways, you can, you can be more specific, you can point to specific forms of progress, right? So, mm. uh, you know, our theories are more accurate um, than they used to be. Uh, we, our theories encompass a broader range of phenomena. Um, than they used to. Uh, those to me seem like, you know, uncontroversial forms of progress, right. epistemic progress, you know, progress yeah. in terms of knowledge. I mean, you know, do they amount to some form of social progress? No, not always. No. Right? I mean, <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, that we've gone, I think, backwards socially, culturally, because the, you know, some theories are more accurate. Um, you know, there's no... Uh, I mean, aren't we all glad that uh, Russia finally said, you know what, we're not going to use nukes, right? Like, that's like... <laughs> yes, like, that's, that's uh, quite a relief. That's good news, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah um, you know, so I'm not talking about progress in some cosmic sense. Yes, yes. I'm just talking about it in terms of if you you know, look along a specific d dimension of value, accuracy, or mm -hmm. um, br scope, right? Yes. Or um, depth of understanding or something like that, right? And yeah. predictions you, are statistically more accurate, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. So you can, you can certainly point to cases where um, we are, we do better than we used to, right? We're yeah. more accurate and so on. Um, uh, where where was this going? I, I I'm trying to remember how this came up. Oh, the contingency stuff. Yes, that yes, uh, that tension between uh, like this idea of like we okay we are along certain axes, right? Um, I like the word satisfied. It's like because <laughs> you know like terms like good or better can be very controversial, right? Like is it necessarily better? I don't know, but I'm satisfied that this is better. <laughs> yeah, right, than it was right. before, right? Um. Uh, there is a little bit of a crisis in terms of faith in the scientific community. You know, maybe crisis is too strong of a term, but there is that tension right now. And, uh, you know, your book kind of speaks to that. And so uh, that's kind of where I think we were headed. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, we, the content of the ideas is probably, you know, highly historically contingent. But the nature of the scientific communities, the way in which they're organized, sometimes, right? Not mm -hmm. every community, but um, when they're organized in the right way, progress in the sense of increased accuracy and scope um, is basically inevitable, right? So mm -hmm. we, we, we would have had a, you know, had things been different, we would have had a, a very different theory of, of kind of the unobservable, you know, bits of nature. Would that theory have been 
uh, as accurate as the theory we have now. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't have been. Um, mm. I mean, you know, it maybe uh, you know things didn't go well for us. Maybe we didn't uh, develop as a, as an an accurate uh, as a theory as we have. Maybe it would have been more accurate, right? Um, right. You know, uh, but it, we would we would still see this steady increase in accuracy, steady increase in in the scope of um, what we are able to investigate and kind of improve our knowledge of. And this is another nice parallel with the evolutionary process, right? Um, and it's something that uh, lots of um, evolutionary biologists got into starting in the, the kind of 1970s and 80s, um, just that uh, if you rewound the tape of life, right? This is a, a phrase that Stephen Jay Gould mm. um, uh, used. Um, you would have gotten very different species than we actually got, right? I mean, depending on how far back you go, you know, it's it's just a matter of chance whether mammals uh, appear or, you know, whether dinosaurs appear or, or anything like that, right? Um, so that that's all very highly contingent historically. But what would not have changed, right, is that these uh, organisms would have become better adapted over time. Um, they would have fissured into separate species over time, right? These populations would have um, uh, split up into to new species um, over time, right? That's just sort of baked into the evolutionary process at, at a higher level. Um, you know, and it doesn't really depend on what it is that's evolving, uh, subject to certain conditions, right? So you need to have some kind of inheritance, um, uh, uh, you know, the kind of inheritance that we have is, you know, this kind of like packets of biological information. Um, DNA, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's necessary for adaptation that, hmm. um, so from the knowledge side, that'd be something like, uh, would be something like books or archives, that sort of thing, right? Like you can't, uh, you have to have some way of transmitting what is constantly being worked on. Yeah, right. Journals, you know, scientific, right. Some kind of training scientists. I mean, right. Um, there are many, many channels of, of inheritance, um, uh, cultural kind of inheritance, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, right, so uh, as long as certain conditions are satisfied, you still get evolutionary adaptation, you still get speciation, um, and for for analogous reasons, you get more accurate theories about you know a greater number of phenomena um, in science. Right, they have to you know. As long as you the scientific community satisfy these uh, certain you know constraints, um, constraints that that are necessary in order to kind of be susceptible to the evolutionary process or the process of of selection anyway. Yeah, yeah, it seems so. It, for you, do you see this primarily as a model 
to help us better understand the growth of uh um or is there actual some kind of correlation where like you think there is an evolutionary like a real evolutionary process just slightly different me uh mechanisms with with the growth of knowledge um i guess i would say both i mean i have i have That's a hard time unseeing science yeah. as an evolutionary um phenomenon now mm. um uh so it, it yeah it's a model but it's a it's a surprisingly kind of illuminating and explanatory uh model of science science is evolving so then yeah it's like, yeah. I, you know i think in it, to to put it in in very literal terms um science is a you know certain communities of scientists um behave like uh any other human culture and they evolve subject to the kinds of pressures that um that you know push cultures in general uh, mm. along an evolutionary trajectory so, so it's you, a yeah, kind of cultural evolution which goes back to your work in evolutionary psychology because it's not just about scientists and their communities it's about human culture in general has has these evolutionary tendencies um mm, i hope it doesn't go back to my work in evolution okay. <laughs> sorry no nope. I, um i was trying to track but it appears i did not okay <laughs> well it's you know i it's more about um kind of the i guess you you'd call the demographic properties of of science rather than their psycholo than the psychological properties of scientists you know so scientific communities for example are very good at kind of isolating themselves from or certain communities anyway are very good at isolating themselves from things that don't matter to their subject hmm. you know um when i'm uh when I'm working out some problem in quantum mechanics, I'm not going to really be worrying about what is being debated uh, in the United States Senate, except, you know, maybe it affects my funding or whatever. But in right. terms of like trying to solve the problem that I'm working on, I'm not going to let that come in in any way. Right? Yeah. The, um, the, and the worrying about your funding is uh, uh, a great example of evolutionary like adaptability. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, adapting to survive, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> survival of the the fundest. Um, <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, so you know they have it's the communities that have properties that yeah. matter rather than the the individual scientists. The psychology. Themselves. Yes, I understand yeah. why that that's problematic. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Right, um, and just in the same way that for populations of organisms, right. Mm -hmm. um, they don't need to behave in a certain way in order to be subject to adaptation, right? The process of natural selection does that independently of how they behave, of, of how the individuals behave, right? It just kind of filters out um, things that are less fit for the environment. Got it. Yeah. Um, so as we as we wrap up here. What are some applications that someone can take away from this? What's something that someone looks at this and if you had to leave people with like 
a, a main thought, what would that be? Uh, hmm. That um, certain scientific communities are more trustworthy than others. Hmm. Um, because they're the properties, uh, their kind of community level properties are better at producing reliable knowledge. Do you mind listing what some of those characteristics are? Or is that, is that stepping on too many toes? Um, no, I don't mind. Uh, um, I'm just trying to think of how to sure. express this in a diplomatic way. Yeah, I was like, I was like, because I'm pretty sure <laughs> there are some definite people that will come to mind when you say this. So yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, take your time. Um. Hmm. I think I would just uh, refer people to the book. Um, yes, rather than, uh, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's kind of a long argument and um mm. it's not something i could package i feel like i i apologize um no 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 worries but, yeah 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 um, well and i understand because like uh <laughs> you don't want to uh on the fly call people out like you want to carefully think through you know when you mention something people are going to take that and apply it to certain communities you know obviously the one about um inheritance the one about uh, obviously, you can measure by the results of accuracy and scope. You've mentioned those, but those are pretty non-controversial. Like, obviously, like if if a community continually reproduces inaccurate findings, like mm -hmm. people are like, yeah, obviously you don't trust them, right? Uh -huh. Like that's that's kind of an obvious one. But I understand that, uh, you know, that's fine. We can wait till November. Um, I mean, so uh, yeah, I, I, I could. I could say you know a couple general things just about sure. you know kind of trustworthiness and and. You know, I mean, I think like if you look at, you know, so much of the confusion that has happened around COVID, you know, I mm. think uh, one of the things that that I hope people will understand is that um, we are very rarely uh, given a glimpse into scientific knowledge developing like day, at, you know, on a daily yes. schedule. Um, and. I wish that we had in our culture a more realistic model for what science is actually like. I think yeah. that um, our this kind of caricature that we promulgate in the form of the scientific method, which leaves no room for human judgment, which leaves mentions nothing about the community level vetting process of scientific ideas hmm. has um, made it very difficult for people to see how science actually works in real time and not be horrified by what they see because it doesn't look anything like the pat, you know, method that we've. Um, raised our children with understanding um is what science is all about um that, that process from lab to textbook generally takes i would say one to three decades maybe longer 
It take it, you know, it depends on the science and yeah. in the it's the shelf life of the content of a textbook yeah. also depends on the science, right? I right. mean, in the stu- you know, in microbiology, you know, the the textbooks may not, you know, <laughs> five years later, you know, we might have That's a completely true, different true. I've heard that, yeah. Um so, you know, it's just uh the commu- the scientific community needs to be able to do its work. Mm. Um and uh and close up to the uninitiated observer mm-hmm. that work looks like a complete mess um but it's a community level process yeah and that is what makes good science so good right is that the community is a well functioning scientific community and well-functioning scientific communities tend to all have certain properties, um, certain community-level properties. Yeah. Um, awesome. You know. well, uh, Dr. Hoffa, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, this has been really helpful and illuminating. Um, so thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. This was really fun. 